Good morning. This morning we want to continue our study of the book of Acts with a teaching from Acts 25. I've titled this Paul's Apologetic to the Roman Authorities, Part 2. Paul was in Caesarea for two years under Felix. He staying in one location was not a new experience for him. He had had that experience before. In fact, uh, he had spent three years in Ephesus, and during which time he did perhaps some of his greatest work. But even before that, he had his silent years. His silent years were those years, you know, after he had come to Christ and when he tried to basically join the Christian community and be accepted by them, they didn't trust him. And the Jews that he formerly was part of, they they hated him, so they were trying to kill him. So for his own safety, his spiritual father, Barnabas, sent him back home. That's That's a lesson for us. When somebody gets in trouble... The place to go is go back home. So he spent time in Tarsus. It's hard to know exactly how much time he spent there. Uh, one commentator I listened to thought it might have been between five and ten years there in Tarsus. And he stayed in Tarsus until his spiritual father came to get him. What a powerful picture that is. When we are so submitted to the Lord that we will be patient and wait until the Lord opens doors, which means he usually sends someone you know, to get us, to recruit us, to guide us back to where he, you know, the Lord will want to use us. And that's what Barnabas did when things um, began to develop in Antioch. There was a need for teachers. Uh, then, then Barnabas went and got Saul, brought him to Antioch, and they, they served the Antioch community for at least a year. And then from there, Barnabas and Saul became partners in apostolic work, and they were sent out. Now, I stress, sent out. Today, we are used to just going out as opposed to being sent out, and we need to learn how to be sent out. So this was a powerful time for Paul, and Paul learned many lessons. And so being isolated, uh, he was used to that. He knew something about how to do that. Now, after the two years in, with, in Caesarea under Felix, Felix was replaced. He was replaced by a man named Festus. Festus uh, means festivity. I mean, so he's kind of a party animal. That's what the name means. Uh, the best I can tell from reading some of the commentaries, there's extra biblical literature that seems to suggest that, that indeed uh, Festus lived up to his name. So Festus, when he got to uh, Caesarea, he wasted no time getting familiar with the Jewish issues of his day. He apparently wasn't all that familiar with with Israel and with the, the, the issues that were being um, dealt with at the time. So he, what he did is immediately upon arriving in Caesarea, he, he went up to Jerusalem. That's probably a couple of day journey up, and it's... It is up because Jerusalem is at a higher altitude than Caesarea. Caesarea is at sea level. Jerusalem is up in the mountains. And so he, he goes, he's literally going up into the mountains to, to the city, the city of Israel, the chief city. He spends about two weeks there. Uh, and during this time, then he meets with the Jewish leaders, and they have this complaint about this prisoner that's in Caesarea named Paul. And they're making these accusations against him. He doesn't know quite what to make of that. So he says, hey, why don't you come back with me and uh, then you can present your case there. So this is the record of of this Festus becoming established in Caesarea and interacting with Paul and the challenges that he has in this setting. 
So let's go ahead and, and look at Festus now in <clears throat> going to Jerusalem. This is where he starts out. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking for a favor. Now, that word favor there is literally the word for grace, charis. So they're asking for a favor against Paul that he summit be he summit him to Jerusalem. In other words, they're saying, would you go, would you send Paul to Jerusalem? Now, what he doesn't know is they plan to ambush, ambush Paul and kill him. Now, you may recall that Paul wound up in Caesarea because of a plot to kill him. And so now they're trying to get him back, and they've got another plot. I don't know if it's the same people or not, but it's the a, a same strategy. We're going to try to surprise the traveling party and kill Paul. Verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority, and that's the, the word for authority there is uh, dunatas. Uh, dunatas, you may, you may hear the word uh, power. That's generally the word for power, dunatas, uh, or some derivative of that. And sometimes the word exousia is used to refer to authority. That exousia means power of choice. Here, the, the word dunitas just refers to people that have the power. Now, clearly, they have power of choice, but they probably have more than power of choice. They probably have the enforcement power as well. So let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong, and that word wrong there is interesting because it means anything out of place. There was a sense of what was appropriate. There was a sense of how things should be in the Roman Empire, a sense of right and wrong. And keep in mind, anytime you start talking about that, what's appropriate, what's right, what's in place, what's out of place, you are fundamentally talking theologically. Because the only person who can define right and wrong truly is Christ. Now, mankind can presume to do it, but they're out of order if they come up with something contrary to Christ. The only way to say something's truly right or wrong is for God to weigh in on it, and we have his perspective. So implicit in the Roman thinking is the biblical conscience, the conscience that God gives every human being that, so that we have a sense of what is right and wrong. One of the things that social sociologists around the world have done is they've noticed that in every culture of the world, there are certain morals or ethical standards that are the same. It doesn't matter where you go in the world. The world holds all these things in common. For example, murder is wrong. You know, adultery is wrong. Stealing is wrong. Lying is wrong. Those things are commonly in every culture embraced. Now, they can be distorted, and when they are, that's when rebellion is, is growing against God's standards. But implicitly, the cultures start out recognizing God's standards of right and wrong. And so, so it was with the Roman Empire. So they had some very clear standards of right and wrong that, unbeknownst to them, ultimately go back to the very conscience that God has put into every human being. And Romans 2 tells us that that conscience serves as a law 
for every person. So if Paul has done anything wrong, what uh, Festus is saying, hey, we'll deal with it. You can bring your charges against them. In fact, that word, bring your charges against them, is a command. He's saying, he's commanding them, you go and bring your charges. That's your responsibility. We will listen to you. So that's uh, that's how this this first few days or first few weeks of ruling uh, starts with Festus. He goes to Jerusalem, getting a lay of the land. So going on to verse 6, after he stayed among them, not more than eight or ten days. So less than two weeks, Festus is in Jerusalem. He went back down to Caesarea. And the next day, the next day after he gets back, he holds, he holds court. He took a seat on the tribunal. The word tribunal is the, the, the Greek word is uh, bema. Bema, you may have heard that before. Um, when banks were, were starting up, uh, they were said to have a bema. A bema was a bench. And the bench is where they would conduct business. So you also have a bench here that's part of the courtroom. So the tribunal has come together. They've ordered Paul to be brought in. And when he arrived, the Jews had come down from Jerusalem. They stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. So it's interesting that you can have a serious charge that cannot be proved. In other words, it's something you're claiming against someone, but you have no evidence to support it. And of course, the Romans required evidence. The Romans were biblically aligned enough to where you couldn't just make a claim against someone and we would be believed. You had to have some some proof, something that would validate what you said, because the Romans believed there was truth, and truth could be discovered. It could be heard, it could be seen, it could be touched, it could be reasoned to. All the sense perception and reasoning capacities of man could lead us to truth. It's a very important principle you need to understand that was foundational of the Roman Empire. One of the reasons it lasted so long is it did have some alignment with biblical truth. Verse 8, Paul argued in his defense. This is his apologetic. He says, neither against the law of the Jews nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. So he simply denies the charges. In a court of law today, commonly someone comes in, uh, a charge is made against them, and they have a chance to respond. So here's Paul's response. He's saying the charges made are, they may be serious, but they're not true. They're not, there is a truth, and this is not true. Uh, Festus, you know, is listening to this, and he doesn't know who to believe because neither party can. They've just made assertions. Each one's made their own assertions. But Festus is kind of biased toward the Jews. He's a new ruler of the Jewish people. He would like to have their favor. You understand when you're ruling anyone, you're managing or leading anyone, it's good to have voluntary support where people want you to be the leader. They want to submit to you. So he wants to do a favor to win some, you know, win some goodwill with them. Wishing to do the Jews a favor, he said to Paul, do you wish to go to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? In other words, he's saying, okay, maybe, uh, you know, they want him to come to Jerusalem. Let's see if he's willing to do that. Now, I think at this time, Festus already knew that Paul was a Roman citizen. So, you know, he's not 
demanding that Paul do this. He's asking, would you be willing to do this? And Paul responds back, well, no. I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where you yourself know very well this is where I should be. To the Jews, I have done no wrong. And that word wrong there is the word for unrighteousness. I have no done unrighteousness. Now, the Jews really had a clear understanding of what's right and wrong because they had not only the conscience, but they had the law, the written law. So they had even more revelation of right and wrong than someone who didn't have the law would have. I've done nothing unrighteous, as you yourself and have uh, you yourself know very well. If I am a wrongdoer, that is, I am unrighteous and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. You see, as if Paul had any control over this, what he's saying is, I'll surrender. I won't fight this if I've really done something unrighteous, but he's saying I haven't. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can, and that word can there is dunamio. Now that's, that's another form of dunamis, which refers to power. No one has the power to give me up to them. Now that's very, very important. We realize this. Paul really recognizes as a Roman citizen, he has certain privileges, certain rights, and they cannot violate those. Even Festus can't. So he's he's actually using the Roman law to his advantage here. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. Now, the word that's used there is to call upon for oneself. In other words, I am using this right, this privilege of a Roman citizen to protect myself And be very clear, I will not go to Jerusalem. I will stand trial before Caesar because I'm persuaded there's absolutely no basis for any of the charges that are being made. Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, which is very wise, it's another thing you see here is some wisdom by the leadership. They don't just make decisions. They actually get counsel from people that can help them make a wise choice. And the conclusion is, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So that's the end of this first section here of chapter 25. And now we're going to move on to another section. We're going to have a guest show up. This guest is actually um, under Festus. Festus is the governor, and he has... has been charged by the Roman Empire to govern a fairly large area, probably all of Israel and maybe some of the surrounding areas. Within Israel, there can be people that rule smaller areas, and they were called kings. And so we have King Agrippa showing up, and we don't know exactly what he ruled over, but he showed up to pay respects to Festus. So verse 13, we have this. Now, for some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. You see, uh, Festus doesn't go to them. They come to him. So you can see who the superior party is. It's clearly Festus. Now, we, we don't know a lot about Agrippa. Uh, we have some extra biblical literature that gives us some clues about him. For example, Agrippa is probably Agrippa II, who was a son of King Herod Agrippa I. 
Bernice, uh, by the way, her name means bring victory, was the eldest daughter of Herod Grippa I, who executed the Apostle James. You can see that in Acts 12. So you see that Agrippa and Bernice were brother and sister. So it's important you understand that. Bernice actually had been married to one of her uncles, um, a king uh, who had, had ruled over an island in the Mediterranean Sea. Apparently he died. And after his death, she lived under circumstances of great suspicion with her own brother, Agrippa II. Uh, this is probably a case of incest going on here. Uh, this was probably very wicked people, in other words. Nevertheless, they've shown up here. And as they stayed there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king. Now, Festus is not clear exactly what he ought to be doing. How should he handle this situation? This is this is very difficult. This is not easy. How do you deal with this person? And I don't even understand the charges. It makes no sense to me. The the Jews are very adamant. They need to get rid of this guy. And I don't know how to get rid of him. The only thing I know is he's appealed to Caesar. If I'm going to send him to Caesar, I need to explain the charges. I don't understand the charges. So he's he's very much in a quandary here. So he, verse 14, as they stayed there for many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king saying this. This is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was in Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So you can see the Romans have a very orderly justice system. There are rules about how justice is to be administered. These rules have ultimately come from their conscience about what is right and what is wrong. Again, ultimately, it's God through his common grace that's revealing to the Romans how to conduct court correctly. We sometimes kind of lose sight of that. We think like the courts operate you know, by made-up laws, the things they come up with. No, they op- they operate if they operate well based on the standards God has set. We get to discover those standards, and we have common grace to be able to do that. So when they came together, here I made no delay, but on the next day, <clears throat> took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, now we have the accusers there, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed. That word evil there is the word Greek word paneros. You may have hear you may hear the word pornography in that. Paneria. Uh, it it can refer to evils of all types, particularly sexually uh, motivated evils, but it can be other types of evils. So, for whatever reason, uh, uh, Festus assumed that the charges were going to be better, more robust. I guess he assumed time had passed. They had time to formulate their case better. Now we're going to hear a better case. And he didn't. So he's just as confused as he was before. So he points out all they had was certain points of dispute about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. What is all of this? I don't know what to do with this. 
So he says in verse 20, being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried with regard there regarding him. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, which is Caesar, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear him myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will hear him tomorrow. So Festus is desperate to find something that he can he can send to the emperor to explain why I'm sending you this prisoner. So the next day, the next day comes Agrippa and Bernice come in with great pomp. Uh, this word for pomp is, uh, it's the Greek word fantasia. We get fantasy from it or fantasia. You may have heard of the movie Fantasia. It's about this great elaborate scene here. Here's the big room. Here's all the big chairs and there are probably flags and banners and who knows what else might have been there. And here comes this king and queen and all the regalia and Agrippa has got to be have his regalia. So it's just going to be this very, you know, very uh, elaborate kind of setting uh, where you've got great honor being paid to the rulers and the, the emperors of Israel. So then they, then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in and Festus said, now Paul's brought in. He's not told to say anything. He's just, brought in. When you get into the next chapter, you can see Festus will give Paul permission to speak. But right now, we're just getting set up. So Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as I myself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write, my Lord, about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable, that word unreasonable is the word logos that's negated with the alpha particle. So when you negate something with the alpha particle, it reverses it. Logos means reasonable. So you put alpha in front of it, it means unreasonable or absurd. It's absurd for me to send a prisoner to the emperor and not indicate the charges against him. So this is the preponderance of or the, the uh, predicament with that Festus finds himself in. He does not know what to do. And he is bound by the Roman customs and Roman law, which largely have come from God. God has put in us, in our conscience, standards of deportment and ethical treatment and how do things to be done, including in a court of law. And so the Romans are following that. That's one of the reasons their empire lasted so long. If you want to live well in God's universe, you have to follow God's rules. No matter what you're doing, even if you're robbing a bank, you have to follow God's rules. You have to have a plan. You have to have leadership. You have to execute well. You know, you've got to think through all the options that could happen to you, you know, so that you're prepared for the various eventualities. So that takes, that's biblical thinking about planning and executing plans and leadership and submission to authority, et cetera. 
So you could get away even with doing sin by using God's ways, but eventually you will get caught. You will get caught. But that illustrates in God's universe, the only thing that really works are God's principles. I don't care. It doesn't matter who you are, what you're doing. You will not have lasting success unless you use God's principles. All right, let's just take some a moment for some theological consideration and then do an application. I want to focus in on faith and reason and then on reason and rationality. So first, uh, just some comments on faith and reason. In 146 BC, the Romans defeated the Greeks militarily. However, culturally, they were greatly influenced by the Greeks, who were people of reason and logic. The Romans prided themselves on legal protocols based on the Greek understanding of reason and logic. Acts 25 provides some examples of these protocols. For example, there was a protocol that you have the right to defend yourself from your accusers. Acts 25 verse 16 gives us that. And the second protocol is the right of every Roman citizen to appeal their case to a higher authority, namely the emperor. Acts 25.11 shows us that. And finally, the right of appeal. If you feel like you're not being treated correctly, you can appeal. And that's Acts 25, verse 27. So we all, you know, you've got this system of thinking that is Roman in nature, but ultimately it comes from God himself. The Roman legal system was predicated on the idea of objective truth. Well, who's the source of objective truth? Again, that's a, that's God. He is a purveyor, the definer of objective truth. It's also, it's based on the idea of human reasoning as a tool to determine truth. But what is the source of rationality? Where does that come from? Where does reason and logic come from? It all comes from God. He is the source of all. This is the God who defines truth and reality, who created the universe with these tools of truth and reality, and then gave mankind the capacity to utilize truth as a tool to discover truth in the universe. The Greek word logos, which is the word in English translated word or logic, basically refers to a reasoned word or a logical word. Now, the Greeks of the 4th and 5th century BC formalized rationality. Prior to that, the Hebrews and the rest of the populations of the world were very reasonable, rational people as well, but they just never formalized it. Well, the Greeks formalized it. They developed uh, the laws of logic. And so that, that what you can now propagate was a rationed argument to discern truth. So they developed the syllogism. The syllogism means, an example of the syllogism is this, A equals B, B equals C, therefore A equals C. That's a common example. That's that's the that's simplistic as that is. The Greeks are the ones that formalized that, actually stated as a propositional truth. So the Greek definition of formal proof based on syllogism has become widely accepted by all the world. All the ethnicities of the world will embrace this. And the Christians should be clear that Greeks' ability to formalize logic is an example of common grace. The Greeks didn't make it up. They simply discovered better how God's universe worked and were able to put it into a propositional format. So the formulation of syllogism is a tool of rationality. It's a tool that we use axiomatically as a principle of the universe. 
But there is an age-old question in the, the subject of epistemology, which is how do you know what you know? What comes first, faith or reason? We know faith and reason exist. Well, which one comes first? Which one precedes the other? The question can be framed as follows. Does one believe to know or does one know to believe? Which way do you go? So when you're looking at this, it's very easy to want to say, well, I, I know to believe. That's what we all want to be true. The problem is, whatever it is you know, how do you know you know it? Can you prove that you know it? See, it gets back to, we've got to have a mechanism. And so the Greeks came up with the laws of logic and the syllogism as tools of rationality to be able to prove things. So the laws of logic are essential here. You've got to be clear that A equal to A, that's called the law of identity. You have to be clear that, that A cannot be both A and not A. That would be a contradiction. So that's the law of non-contradiction. It's either one or the other, either A or not A. And there's excluded metal, which is it can't be both. It can't be both A and non-A. So those are very sound very simplistic, but they're basic laws of logic. And when you put those with a syllogism, then you have a way to do a proof. Follow those rules. Use the syllogism for reasoning. So this is what the Greeks did. They just formalized what should be obvious to all of us, but for whatever reason, the Greeks were given the grace and the common, both common grace and the empowerment to be able to put this together. So given all the rational proofs are based on the laws of logic, which cannot be proven, then it seems clear that faith must precede reason. Wow, that's interesting. Therefore, all rational arguments are ultimately based on faith, faith in the laws of logic, faith in syllogisms to help prove things. So if when you recognize that the very mechanisms of logic require faith, we can't prove them. We assume they are true. They're self-evident truth. We are always starting with faith. That means all reasoning ultimately is grounded in faith. Faith in the laws of logic, faith in the syllogism as a tool, faith that truth exists. So all of these statements of faith are the predicate for us to be able to prove anything, to reason to any conclusion. So that's it's important to understand this, how God's universe works and how we are all people of faith. So now I want to take that thought and just do a quick application here. Um, Atheist Richard Dawkins, he uh, his apologetic to Christians is expressed in statements aimed at religious people. And he'll say things like, I have facts to support my philosophy. And then he'll say, what are your facts? So basically, he's making a lot of assumptions here. Dawkins assumes there's no spiritual reality, only natural reality. Therefore, truth can only be known through sense perception and human rationality. In other words, he believes reality is a closed system, and all of his assumptions are statements of faith. You see, all the things I've just read to you that he assumes are the same as a statement of faith. Assumptions are statements of faith. Presuppositions are statements of faith. You know, hypotheses are statements of faith. You'll even hear the atheists talk about things they believe, which means that's a statement of faith. So, well, it's so interesting to listen to the talk because they don't recognize they are really people of faith, but they claim to be people of reason. And because they want to 
look at you and dismiss you as a person of faith. They use the idea of being faith-based as a pejorative. That's a negative. So it, it's it's quite interesting to see the contradictions that's inherently in the atheist mindsets. So since most people make the same assumptions, it's easy to overlook the reality that Dawkins is a person of faith, but he is. If he was confronted with this proposition, he would probably deny it because it, he perceives himself as a rational person and views everybody else that's not a rational person as non-rational because they're people of faith. Implicit in Dawkins' apologetic are a number of assumptions that I've just gone through. Just to remind you, objective truth, rationality is a tool to discern truth, sense perception is a tool to rationality. None of these assumptions can be proven using the Greek formal methodologies of logic. His ability to claim something as a fact requires these premises. In addition, he undoubtedly presumes the veracity of the Greek laws of logic as tools to draw conclusions. Like all humans, Dawkins is limited by how God defined his universe to work, which includes the human ability to engage in rational thought and discern truth. Without the divine gift of human reason, no one has a tool to discern truth and therefore no ability for human rationality. Like most who oppose Christ, Dawkins would seek to oppose the above argument. He would not agree. He, if he were listening into this call and listening into this discussion, he would look for all kinds of ways to, to disagree, to reject it, to renounce it, to criticize it. He would probably assert that reason is not predicated on faith because his apologetic presumes that reason is superior to faith and the only way to truth because he fails to recognize that reasoning is always always based on faith. You can't help it because you cannot prove the the tools that you use to reason with. You assume that they're true. That means you have a statement of faith. The Dawkins apologetic seeks to minimize faith, using it as a pejorative, saying things like, you're a person of faith, but I'm a person of reason. But this is all a ruse. And Christians must be wise enough to recognize this deception. In the beginning, God is the undeniable reality of all humanity. Everything comes from God. Nothing exists apart from him. He alone has to find truth and rationality. The predicate for all human rationality is the creator who has chosen to reveal himself through revelation, sense perception, and reasoning. This means that the laws of logic originate with God alone. Because of this, every human being is a person of faith, whether they are aware of it or not, whether they want to admit it or not, they're a person of faith. Faith undergirds all rationality because God created the universe to work this way. The Romans, like all humanity, utilized God's revelation in creation, that is general revelation, including the laws of logic as they, they based as a basis for their society, including their legal system. All the laws for society, including the legal system, are, are encapsulated with logic. And logic ultimately goes back to faith. This enables them to have an orderly society. They probably didn't understand that they live by faith in the creator of all things to define their epistemology, but they did. They were people of faith. And may we be unequivocal in our clarity of understanding that we're people of faith and may be thankful that the gift of rationality is a tool given to us to help us discern truth that by faith we believe exists and we believe comes from the God of creation. So may we have grace to get clear 
and be clear thinkers and clear in our presentation of truth to others. In Jesus' name, amen.